Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Del Fiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. And hello, everybody. Welcome to our show today. I'm joined by my colleagues, Deanne Cuellar, who leads our community broadband outreach work, and Sean Gonsalves, who is a senior reporter and editor on our broadband team. We're going to talk about a few different things today, but well, first of all, welcome to the show. Let's start there. (laughs) All right. CBN is in the building or buildings. Hi. Hi. We have, it's Deanne's debut for Building Local Power, so it's always a special episode. Hello. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you guys on the show. And with that, let's dive into some questions for Sean. So last fall, I believe Congress passed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. So Sean, could you talk about that as it relates to the broadband world? Maybe we can start with just a general description of what what's in this bill. Good question. Good question, because there's different pots of money that, that are floating out of there, floating from the federal government to, to states. And so this shouldn't be confused with the American Rescue Plan money, which has already made its way to state coffers. And the difference really between what's the money that's available in the American Rescue Plan and the money that is going to be available once it makes its way to the states and the infrastructure bill is that the American Rescue Plan money is a lot more flexible which is important. So the the money that goes to the states and local communities, it gives a lot of wiggle room, uh, the the spending rules. There's a lot of wiggle room on how you can spend those funds, which includes the ability of local communities to define what's considered affordable and reliable and and use that to justify deploying networks or initiatives or projects in places even that are considered in the narrow sense of the term served by an incumbent provider. So that's so so the money that a lot of state legislatures and local communities already have in hand, at least a good portion of it, is the American Rescue Plan. As you mentioned, in November, the infrastructure bill passed. And in the infrastructure bill, there was $65 billion for broadband alone. And in that, you well, we should first of all say, because this is important. It's the largest federal investment in broadband ever. So it is a watershed moment in terms of federal investment in broadband infrastructure and expanding broadband access. So $65 billion, what does that get you? That's 42 and a half billion that's going to be allocated to the states in the form of block grants under what what they call the BEAD program. I think it stands for Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program, BEAD, B-E-A-D. And that's going to be administered by the, uh, the Department of Commerce's uh, NTIA. And essentially, broadly speaking, so the money is, so the way the language of the bill is written, the money is, has to first target what is defined in the bill as unserved areas. And those are areas that are where people have, don't have access to 25.3 megabits per second broadband service which is the federal minimum definition around speeds of your connection. Now, there aren't many places in the country 
outside of the most rural regions of the nation that don't have access to 25-3 broadband. So in, in, that, in that sense, the, the, the bulk of the money in terms of deploying for money to build new networks is really geared towards funneling that money mostly to those rural regions, at least to take care of those areas first. Only after all of the areas that don't have 25-3 are served can money can can the money then be used to bring better networks and service to you know what the, what, what the bill calls underserved areas and those are areas that don't have access to service between twenty five three megabits per second and one hundred twenty. So just just that area would include much bigger chunks of urban areas, for example. Correct. 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 And so it's fair to say the bill largely targets rural America, which is which is sort of unfortunate because. In, in cities, because it kind of feeds into this idea that the digital divide is really, you know, between urban and, and rural America, which isn't the case. We, there's a, a digital divide exists in any locale that you're in. The, the contours of it change depending on your location. Some places in many rural areas don't have the infrastructure at all. In more densely populated areas, they're more likely, and in most cases, do have networks that are available. But... When you talk about how you define the term served, there's a lot of places that have a single monopoly provider who charge high rates for an unreliable second rate service. And there's lots of folks in urban areas and in densely populated areas that don't have access to broadband for a variety of reasons. A lot of it has to do with affordability. Mm -hmm. as, as, as we like to say, if it's not affordable, it's not accessible. So, and then basically, you know, each state is going to get $100 million just for broadband on, in, in this infrastructure bill. And the remaining money will basically be divided up based on like this formula that calculates how many unserved households are in each state, which kind of brings us around to the FCC maps, because we're hoping that the FCC does a better job of updating their notoriously inaccurate broadband coverage maps in the near future, because otherwise, as Doug Dawson points out, or one of our friends, Doug Dawson, the states with the most inaccurate FCC maps are going to lose funding. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that, that's why that's important, that mapping piece. So broadly speaking, that's what's in the infrastructure bill. There are some very good things in there that are even accessible and will be accessible to cities and, and, and towns that, have, that are not rural areas. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get into that. I mean, what are the good points in this bill? So, I mean, from our perspective, we advocate the, the idea that there ought to be, the, the closer you get to the problem, which are local communities, the better information that you have, particularly since the FCC and even states by and large don't have really precise granular information about where connectivity challenges really are. But in local communities that, are, that, that have been dealing with overnight, essentially, having to deploy hotspots because they've got hundreds or thousands of kids who can't do distance learning. We've got businesses who are you know, in the midst of trying to figure out, you know, the, the remote work situation, or even if, if it's not a remote work situation where you have businesses that where e-commerce has become central to the survival of, you know, small businesses, reliable connectivity is super important and local communities have the best sense of where those challenges are in their community. So the good news is that unlike 
previous federal allocations, for example, ARDOF, where they have this reverse auction where the FCC kind of doles out money based on these bids, they're, we're getting closer to the, to the, to the local communities where, where this money is being sent to states in the form of block grants. So that's, that, that's one step in the right direction. There's a couple other really good news things in, in, in the infrastructure bill, though, in terms as it relates to local internet choice and community-driven broadband solutions, which is that the bill does specifically say that states cannot exclude cooperatives, nonprofits, and public utilities and local governments, et cetera, from being eligible for tapping these funds, which raises an interesting question in some states, but it's good that that language is specifically in the bill. The other good thing is that funds can be used to bring low-cost broadband to multifamily housing units. The reason why that's important is because according to, you know, the data that, you know, you see from a lot of observers about where in urban areas there is a real connectivity challenges, it's often concentrated in multi-dwelling units for a variety of reasons. So that, 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 that's really important. I've seen a study that estimated that something like between 20 and 25 percent of Households in urban areas that lack access to broadband live in multi-dwelling units. So that's an important piece that's in the bill. And then there's also, there's, there's, there's real money in there for digital inclusion efforts. That, that's things like digital devices, digital literacy, because even if you have an internet connection, if you don't have the devices to access it, if, you, if you're not comfortable using it, again, it, it, it means that it's not really accessible. And then finally, I would say that one of the other good things about this bill is that the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program, which was a temporary program, which is essentially, it's a subsidy to uh, $50 a month for a discount off of your internet service. And they converted that into a permanent program called the Affordable Connectivity Program. Now, they allocated money for that. The one thing about that is that, in, in, is that oftentimes when there are budget cutbacks, it's the social safety net that gets trimmed. And so this particular program requires that Congress continues to fund it. And so one of my concerns and others is that down the road, if austerity is in the air and they're looking to cut because the deficit, deficit hawks come out and scare everybody into thinking that we've got to cut, 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 it's programs like this that often are on the chopping block. So unless Congress continuously funds this, that that's, that's, that's a benefit that that could go. I should also mention that the EBB is a $50 a month subsidy for eligible low-income households to pay for internet service subscription. The Affordable Connectivity Program, while it does make it permanent, it reduces that subsidy from 50 to 30, which helps. But considering that we pay, as a country, some of the highest prices for internet service in the developed world, even that discount for some families is still leaves a home internet subscription out of range. You mentioned that this would raise interesting questions in some states. Could you expand on that a little bit? I'm assuming that that might refer to the language in this bill that doesn't prohibit municipalities, nonprofits, et cetera, from establishing these networks. Is that a potential conflict with states that do have some of those restrictions on their own books? Bingo. That, I mean, that, that's just it. It's that. So what we, we, we were hoping for, what would have been ideal is that there would have been something in the infrastructure bill that preempted states from, from these various preemption laws. So right now there's 17 states in the country that either prohibit municipal local governments from, for lack of a better term, getting in the broadband business in terms of building and operating networks, 
or they erect barriers to such a degree that makes it virtually impossible to, to do so. So the, the uncertainty comes from in these states where these preemption laws exist, what's going to, like North Carolina, for example, is a state that has these preemption laws. So if on the one hand, you have this federal legislation that says you can't prevent municipalities from accessing this money, but you have state preemption laws that say municipalities can't build broadband networks, what happens in those cases? The answer to that question isn't exactly clear to us. And that's something that we're trying to get some clarity on and talking to some legal scholars. And ultimately, it might not actually be crystal clear until there's some sort of legal challenge, which you know we may see. Another bit of uncertainty, and actually this is a big one, which is how ready are states gonna be? So the infrastructure bill requires that states submit a five-year strategic plan before they can even access the money. Now, depending on what state you are in, some states have broadband offices and actual strategic plans with, with staff, and other states don't, like my state, for example. So Maine and Vermont, for example, are well poised. Okay, they've got, they've got a great plan. They're, make, they're putting real investments in broadband infrastructure. They're putting local internet choice at the center of those plans, giving a, a, a tremendous role to local governments, municipalities, regional governments to play a leading role. Vermont, they've got the communication union districts, which is going to be their primary vehicle to deliver a universal broadband across a very rural state. But in Massachusetts, for example, there really isn't a plan. There's no central broadband office. There really isn't a plan. The money that they're talking about possibly deploying is pretty paltry in comparison to other states in New England. And most of it's for not for the, the deployment of new networks. So there's a, there's a bit of uncertainty in terms of which states will do what with the money. Some will do well with it. Others will just probably throw the money at the big incumbent providers and cross their fingers and hope for the best. And then I would just say the last thing is that is around sort of managing expectations. So this is also important to know about the infrastructure bill, which is that the bill says that the NTIA has six months, which began in November. So what, they've got what, I guess another four months or so left for them to come up with the rules on how states can apply for the money and spend it. And then there's the fact that the states have to submit these plans. So in many states and maybe most of them, it will probably be late 2022 at the earliest, probably early 2023 before any of this money gets to the states to spend on broadband. Now is the time where you think about the American Rescue Plan money that's already out there, the forthcoming funds from the infrastructure bill that's on its way, states and localities that don't have their act together and don't have a plan, the time to get to work is yesterday. It's a good time now to really be pooling resources and thinking seriously about how they're gonna solve these connectivity challenges. If we have any folks who you know, are working at the local level or at the state level, what would you say is, is step one to getting started on that? I mean, well, first of all, what you need is, you know, you need some local champions and you need, and you need a group of folks who are willing to, you know, this is a sustained effort. This isn't something like a lot of things that maybe people might be thinking are, are accustomed to, which is, oh, we have the money, let's buy something and next week or tomorrow it's there. Building networks is not an overnight process by any stretch. If you're talking about a fiber deployment, you're talking, you know, anywhere from, if you're doing it quickly, you know, 18 months to five years to six years. So, you know, some of these connectivity challenges are immediate, which is why different communities are considering different technologies that they can stand up quicker than, than say, a, a full-blown 
fiber to the home network, but certainly you need a group of people, local champions who are, are, are committed to stay engaged on this issue and, and in particular engage key local officials who can see beyond sort of the, the, the normal election cycle and really start to look at tapping funds to, to create broadband strategy plans, to conduct feasibility studies with the intention of not just studying something for the sake of studying it, but studying something for the, for the sake of getting the kind of data and information you, you, you need to understand what the landscape is, to start collecting data in terms of affordability and reliability. For example, school districts have a lot of that data because they're the ones that, you know, in many instances, in many communities had to set up community hotspots. Those are indicators of where in communities there are real connectivity challenges. So it's all about really doing your homework, getting together a group of people, including community leaders, business leaders, informing these plans about, about how to move forward. And then also having folks that understand where the various pots of money are, how you can apply, all of these kind of things. So there's, there's, there's kind of a lot of spokes to the wheel, but it's doable. And, you know, there's communities across the country where these projects are starting to really take off. And then, of course, which is why Deanne is here, but you've got organizations and people like Deanne and, and folks all across the country who are at the ready to, you know, to help communities think about how you organize these type of efforts and, and, and leverage this moment. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. That was a great, great kind of summary. Before we dive a little deeper into Deanne's organizing work, we're going to take a short break. Thanks for listening to our conversation. If you're enjoying the show, I hope you'll consider heading over to ilsr.org donate to help support our work. And if you want to learn even more about our broadband work, you should check out another ILSR podcast called Community Broadband Bits. You can find it wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks. And now back to the show. There's obviously a lot of work to be done, but what an exciting moment that we have. We have all these different pots of funding to keep track of, you know, <laughs> you know, we're in a, in a great moment, looking forward to the future of connectivity in this country. So with that, Deanne, as I said before, welcome to the show and welcome to ILSR. Could you tell our listeners just a little bit about what you, what your work focuses on here at ILSR? Sure. I am new to the team, but I am bringing over 10 years of coalition building and movement building work from grassroots to the beltway uh, to my role. I actually also come from a city, San Antonio, Texas, where we've done work that's similar to what other geographies are doing. And I'm hoping to work as a team with people like Sean and, and Chris and Ryan, and everybody else to make sure that we can get the research tools and other resources needed um, out across the country so that a lot of these municipal uh, broadband networks or community broadband networks can advance quickly. Could you talk a little bit about the work that's happening right now in LA County? Sure. So LA County is a, is a perfect example of what we would like to see across geographies in different parts of the country. And as Sean talked at great depth about is that you have local laws, which we don't get into too much, then you've got state law, state rulemaking, then you have federal rulemaking that's going on that impact whether or not connectivity projects are, are going to advance. 
And in LA County, what's interesting about this is that you have a large city, right? It's Los Angeles, LA County. You have a lot of density. You have the in-between markets and then you have the rural. So we have the kind of like all three that we, we talk about. We talk about these three different types of customers that would be the people that would connect to the internet. What's really interesting about LA County is the stakeholder groups. And in order for anybody who's listening that's considering starting something with community broadband in the locale is that, you know, in order for, for you to do that, there has to be a willingness to collaborate and there has to be the different stakeholder groups, which Sean also talked about. In LA County, you've got, I haven't seen a coalition, a coalition of coalitions is what I will call LA County. That's what makes it different is a coalition of coalitions. So you have grassroots organizations, you have anchor institutions, you have people that are elected in office, you have the business community, you have people that are working on health equity, you have you have people that represent not just the county, but also like the counties, but also the cities. And then you have individual leaders that the uh, broadband connectivity probably wasn't their first issue for the last five or 10 years, but now it's become their second issue. So there's a lot of momentum to succeed. And it's, it's continuing to be a dynamic area of the country where we're probably going to might, I don't know if Sean agrees with me, this, it could become the testing ground, it could become one of the geographies, this testing ground to see how a lot of this work rolls out um, this year. I, I agree. Especially, especially a city as, as, as large as Los Angeles. It's, it's a challenge in, in large cities where there's multiple providers and all of the you know, politics and machinations that go on with that. But, but there are huge pockets of, of folks who are on the wrong side of the digital divide in urban areas, even as large as Los Angeles, where you think they would have everything. Was there a particular catalyst for this these coalitions coming together in this larger coalition? I mean, was it the pandemic? Was there a, you know, was there a spark for it? Or has this been kind of just a gradual growth? I mean, on the outside looking in, I mean, I would, would want to hear directly from the leaders on the ground that are leading this work as it, you know, should be their voice that's offering this opinion up. But on the outside looking in, I think we have people at the state level that are not waiting for rulemaking at the federal level to impact the solutions that they would like to design with the community. So we saw something similar last week with the net neutrality coming back up in California, right? And in how that how that's going to play out in DC is like to be, you know, to be determined, TBD, right? So there was also a local ordinance in Oakland that is really similar to what Sean was talking about that I thought really kicked the door open for codifying policy at the local level as it relates to multi-dwelling units. So again, testing ground. So we're seeing in California, this willingness to, to, to collaborate, this willingness to design community solutions together. And the third thing is that it's all community driven. What are, what are we doing? You know, what are groups doing to support this coalition specifically or others around the country as they grow and are stepping up to meet this moment? Mm -hmm. Well, we, so we definitely want to plug that we have, we have a great listserv, you know, the community Brevin network initiative team has this great listserv. If you'd like to join, you should definitely reach out to us. We have a lot of research. We have a lot of one pagers and we have videos that can really help galvanize conversation in your community. I say that because if you're a community that hasn't done a roadmap or a feasibility study or the research, we might have something that already exists 
that could get that work going in your community possibly could be repurposed. So don't come and say like, there's no research. The Institute for Local Self-Reliance has that ready now. I think the other thing that our team is could be really resourceful at with local communities is that just because you have a roadmap or a plan that you have invested resources into, that plan is not going to go anywhere unless you have the experts at the table that can help you put that plan into place. It could just be a plan that just sits there and it's a beautiful plan. So the expertise of our organization could help you break through some of those challenges that might've been an idea that cannot go forward. And the last thing is the issue around digital inclusion tech equity and the digital divide. Sean mentioned being a champion. Being a champion is great. You could be a champion of the issue, but if the leadership and the vision is not there to help your community get from point A to point Z, that could be another stuck point in this work that we might be able to help you with. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, something else that, you know, just listening to you, I forgot to mention is that, so now that the infrastructure bill was passed, the, the cable and big telco lobby is going to focus their efforts at state houses. What do I mean by it? So these big incumbent providers would much rather have monopoly markets where they're the only game in town. You have no choice but to come to them. And so they see a lot of these community broadband projects as threats to their bottom line and to the power and control that they have over these markets. And so you can expect that they're going to focus some of their lobbying power, which we've seen to see has waned a little bit over the past few years, just as this problem has just become so apparent and the track record has become apparent that what we've been doing isn't working. So that's another thing that's important because we've seen communities where, where you have a robust public education campaign can make a difference in how a community decides to move forward. You know, there's the, these incumbents will pull out every trick in the book, all of these tactics, oh, it's a boondoggle. It's a waste of taxpayer money. It doesn't work, all of these kind of things. And so communities are going to need to educate themselves and be prepared for those type of campaigns, which can really torpedo plans that have been long in the making. If you're not constantly talking to city leaders and city officials and obviously to your neighbors and, and, and citizens to give a real grasp of what the issues are at stake and the need for there to be a more competitive market, you know, where there's, where people actually have choices and it's not just the big guy or nobody. And so these, these are things that, that folks ought to prepare for as well. And, and that's where the work of what Deanne is doing and, uh, and, and other ally organizations are doing can be really useful and, and, and helpful because if this is a road we've been down before, we're, we're, we're pretty familiar with the obstacles and challenges and roadblocks and, you know, why reinvent the wheel if you don't have to? Yeah, I'm guessing we could essentially predict, like you said, everything that the big telcos are going to say. We could just write a script, basically. We already have all of our own evidence and resources to back up why these solutions work and why communities should have the decision-making power to choose their own solution, right? Dan, I don't know if there was there anything else you wanted to add on Sean's point. Oh uh, yeah, I, I'll add one thing. I, I think what's really interesting about our work is like the approach is different. So yes, I expect the op, you know the opposition being the big telcos to you know pop up like guacamole eventually, right? As soon as we start seeing you know the, the waterfall of resources into local communities, but I also think that there's a broader conversation that leaders in their neighborhoods and their communities could be having with one another 
around affordability, um, not just affordability, um, whether it's free or high-speed internet access, is um, the approach is different. Uh, big telco companies want you to be a very elegant consumer or customer. And so that's why they're saying that's more expensive. That's too hard. Come to us. It's free. It's high quality because they're not looking, they're looking at you as like this elegant customer or consumer, whereas advocates of digital inclusion and digital divide and building community broadband networks, we see connectivity as critical infrastructure, life-saving critical infrastructure, and also letting communities be critical content creators as it should be. Really similar to what we saw in low power FM radio movements decades ago. So I hope that conversation, it starts to bubble to the top now that we see more people coming to the table. The table is so much wider now, which is the good thing. One good thing that came out of the pandemic is that you know the amount of people that are now looking at working on the digital divide has like probably quadrupled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all good points, you know, something that Deanne just touched on, which is important because it's the, it's the infrastructure. So it's like, it's not connectivity. Just, I mean, there's the, it touches on almost everything that we do in our lives now. So it's not just about remote work or distance learning as important as those two things are, but a real important thing, for example, is telehealth and the emergence of it and how that can be a social determinant of health outcomes. You know, that's a phrase that you hear a lot in the space where, where there's now the potential right in the palm of our hands to improve health outcomes through various telehealth initiatives and utilizing the, the infrastructure that, that can be built and also a tremendous amount of cost savings. That's, that's important because it touches on everyone. So in other words, we're not just talking about as important as entertainment and, and, and those things are and they really are, but we're not just talking about gaming or folks being able to stream things in 4K, high definition, uh, but we're talking about everything across the board from economic development to, you know, Deanne talked about this, this vision that a lot of these companies have of you just be a nice little consumer, but there's applications now and, and abilities that you need, you know, greater upload speeds and symmetry and everything to do things that are more than just buying stuff online that have to do with being a producer that have to do with, you know, being a small business owner or create or, or being a, a creator. And so there's all of these things, but I think telehealth in particular is an area that can really, or should really drive a lot of the, the discussion about why this is so critical as a piece of infrastructure. I mean, it's one thing if healthcare organizations have access to cutting edge technology, but if the patients don't, then it doesn't mean a whole lot. Right. And telehealth and, and, and access to telehealth and access to remote learning are human rights. Everybody should have right to healthcare. Everybody should have a right to an education. And if you're talking about infrastructure, if every resident living in a community cannot access those at a high quality at any time, then your community at this moment is not future-proofed. In the pandemic, that's how the pandemic got connected to access to the internet is that for decades, we've been told that everywhere that you see a red dot or a map or some other you know, infographic, there's access to the internet, you just have to subscribe to it and you can get it. And that wasn't true, right? If that was true, then how come like school buses had to thread together to make mesh networks? How come there were public school teachers teaching from a parking lot? Like, the list is long of the things that we saw, and it was nationwide. It was it was it was across the it was across the country. So it's like, 
we we have let historically big companies tell us that that, that was the solution. We we did it their way, and now we're going to have to walk and chew gum. Like I always say, you have to walk and chew gum at the same time. It's it's like I you know I think that we're going to have to like come to terms with the fact that there are unmet needs that are that have to be addressed so that our communities can be future proofed. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I have one final question for you. It's the same one I asked Sean earlier, which is basically for listeners who are hearing all this information right now, and maybe they don't have, you know, LA County is certainly not the only place where this kind of movement building is happening, but if they either want to join or kind of establish this sort of coalition in their own community, where should they get started? They should definitely get started by visiting mooneynetworks.org. We have lots of resources that are public now. I would scour through what's uh, publicly available. If there's a particular tool or resource you don't see, I would reach out directly to one of us on our team. We're all very friendly and we can set up some time to chat and begin going over like what there is and what there isn't currently going on in your community. And we might even be able to help come up with like a little starter kit. Fantastic. Thank you guys so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we sign off here? Organize. It's all about action. It's all about action. You know, the time for studying and thinking and all of these things is, 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 should be in the rearview mirror. There's, there's unprecedented amount of funds available. There's a tremendous demand. There's communities that are doing this all over the country which should be encouraging to folks that are wondering if they can do it, it can be done. So it's an exciting time in this particular thing. And like Deanne says, you know, we're going to have to walk and chew gum at the same, the same time. There's a lot of pressing issues that people are thinking about and are dealing with, and they're all important. But when you talk about infrastructure, it's not, you know, as sexy or leading the news all of the time, but you notice it when, for example, if you're living in a world that needs highways and real roads and you live in a place that only has dirt paths, that's a problem. And there's a way to fix that. Or if you, you know, you're living in a world that where everybody needs electricity, unfortunately, we're past that point for the most part. We don't want to settle for living in a society where some folks have a fully electrified home and other folks just have a light bulb or two that works. So this is where we're at and the time is now. All right. And as usual, if folks want to get started, you can find all the resources we mentioned and the websites on ILSR.org. We'll have a page up for this episode. Thank you, Deanne. Thank you, Sean, for joining me today. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to everything discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Just El Fiaco, and edited by Drew Birschbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. 